3: can tell by the looks on their faces as they go scurrying through the rain, maybe we pushed it too far this time. Maybe we have pushed it too far this time, and finally that gigantic, that tremendous sledge, that hammer, is going to come right out of a clock boom, New York is gone. <laughs> you know, it, it's a fascinating thing for an outlander, for someone who lives way yeah, an outlander to observe what new york does during the slightest indication that weather might be glowering just a little bit could it be possible that new york has a fantastic case of conscience that new york's great abstract life you know we're constantly writing about new york talking about new york writing how it feels to live in new york and people like uh oh, people like uh, truman capote people like uh What's this guy from the Times? People like, what's this guy from Esquire? What's this guy from Playboy? All these people are writing constantly about the mystique of New York. And, of course, it has become increasingly abstract. More and more, New York life bears a relationship to no other life. It is New York life. There are people who are alive, you know, way out there wandering around the hills and bumping into each other and chillicothe coffee, way out there in the dark. Fastnesses of, for want of a better word, the outer darkness, out there in the boondocks. I might use a better known phrase, way out there in the... Oh, you know. And, And here we are, we're all gathered together, huddled here, if you please, in New York. And somehow we have gotten the ingrown feeling of a faculty... You know, you know what the what, what faculty life is like in a in a college that's way off in the hills, someplace up, let's say, out in Princeton or Dartmouth or somewhere. The, the ingrown life of the faculty is an interesting thing, very interesting thing to observe. It grows, it grows kind of, well, it's it's ingrown. It's it's like this toe within a sock, within a shoe, within an overshoe, within a drift of snow, and it's all by itself. It has no context. With, lives beyond the context of its own little leaves and its own files. It has no real contact with the outside world. Once in a while, a new group of students will come in, and they will absorb those students. But the students are always on the periphery, just as the tourist is on the periphery here in Manhattan. He comes, he goes. For a while, he sings and dances with us, but never is part of us. And then he departs, but we stay. We are the faculty of New York. And, as we grow more and more ingrown, we become more and more insular. we have our own mores, our own mode of operation, and so we write our own literature we of course, and i'm not even speaking of Damon Runnan who did not who never wrote as far as I'm concerned, the literature of New York. Uh, Runyon wrote Runyonese, uh, but nevertheless, we have our own we have our own literature it, it pours out of the the news, it pours out of the the indignant. Pulp pages of the Post, always angry about things which, <laughs> ah! And then you have the good, calm, vaguely fuzzy voice of the New York Times, ponderously moving along a concrete highway that's a circular highway, of course. And we have our own literature, we're our own mores, our own world, our own way of being. That the let's say the mystique of Horn and Hardart is always and will forever be lost on. The, the the tourist, the man from Cleveland. I, I know you know the man from Cleveland comes. Oh, look at you with the nickels in. Oh, is this a, well, always what I heard about the the, the 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 automat, you know. But it isn't the automat. You hardly ever hear it called the automat to people living in New York. It's something else. But here is here is this this mystique growing. It's a, it's a, it's an inner circle. And once in a while, you see, this is where we get to the point of this. Thing. Here, now sit up straight, will you? I mean, just because it's Saturday, sit up. Sit up. I'm awfully tired. This whole miserable business. I mean, you're getting a crimp. I'm getting a crimp. We're all crimped. And so we sit here in this little, this circle, this sewing circle that is Manhattan. And once in a while from the outer world will come the slight... Suggestion of a wind. What was that? We turn and look over our shoulders. Or maybe a little rain will come down broad. What's this wet stuff? Of course, we're used to wet stuff. I was over on on the east side the other day in the 60s. Let me tell you. Have you ever pulled up, say, about 2 o'clock in the morning in the 60s, somewhere in the east side over on 2nd, over there in Tristville, you know? All these big new fancy apartments have gone up, and all these great big fancy balconies are out looking out over the river. Oh, this is this is expensiveville. This is ex- this is Accountville, If I ever saw it, see, and it's over there. You pull up about two o'clock in the morning, and you get out of a cab, or you get a. Oh, incidentally, only cabs are fitting in that neighborhood. There, it's the transient world, you know. And and do you have you have you ever had the feeling that you're going to go to hell in a cab? <laughs> You know, <laughs> paying the fare, and the meter's ticking all the way, and and so you get out of a cab. I, I did this just just the other night. I get out of a cab over there in the East 60s. It's two o'clock in the morning, and I hear this,
2: <laughs>
3: and it's it's all around me. Not a soul is stirring. Not even a mouse. <laughs> and there's a, there's a faint moisture in the air. <laughs> And, and I had just left the west side where all was pristine and calm and quiet. And I couldn't figure out what it was. I thought, is it the river flowing past? What is it? And then it dawned on me. It was air conditioner And the whole world there was air-conditioned. <sharp inhale> and I looked up, and all these sleeping apartments you could hear humming. It's a frightening thing, really. <laughs> It really is. You can hear it. It's getting more and more. At three o'clock in the morning, all the apartments go. And once in a while, you you hear the little metal flaps of the of the what are they? Little ventilators on the side of these things. And then you'll hear a rattly old air conditioner that's about nine years old somewhere or some guy hasn't quite made it up there on the 7th floor and he's in a rent controlled apartment and they'll get him out before the 1st of the year you know it and, sh- and they're all spitting this little this little moisture spitting it out at you you stand there in the middle of the street and you begin really you begin to realize that you are now living in the contained transistorized good life of the 20th century that these these are the truly insular people we, in, in, in New York, we like to think that out in the Midwest, they are isolationists. Oh, 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 you have no idea how isolationist New York is. It's even isolationists about New Jersey, 15 feet away. And we're living in this little faculty, all of us together. And once in a while, there'll be this little breeze come down the street. And somebody will say, Whoa, well, what was that? And the guy next to him said, "That was a wind, I think, a wind, a wind, a wind. Uh, Wind, wind, wind. And then ten minutes later, there will be an extra large drop will come down. What what was that? Somebody's air conditioner? That's, That's rain. And within five minutes, all over the dial, you hear nothing but a constant hullabaloo. Television, radio, all they're talking about is this thing that came from the outside world, this rain. Have you listened to the newscast today? this piddling little rain we're getting here this miserable little rain and, and i'm I'm listening to the newscast. 15 minutes of time and on 46th Street there were over two inches of water and on 23rd Street there were seven inches of water and 14 old ladies had to get out of their car and oh it was terrible oh it's so awful here! you have no idea what it's and ladies and gentlemen the barometer is going up and down and sideways and the multiple and it goes you see and it sounds like a fantastic disaster has hit Manhattan what it is is the outside world has hit Manhattan which is a disaster in itself <laughs> And we are becoming aware of something, you see, that out there is that world. And it goes on and on and on like this in this little faculty world. You know how the how a faculty is. I'll give you a little insight into the faculty world, that the slightest little ripple causes gigantic waves because they've got nothing else to do, you know. They're all sitting around there on their duffs, all looking at each other suspiciously, all waiting for somebody to move into the department, that, that sharp young man from Dartmouth who wrote that monograph, that idiotic thing, that you know that. And, and they're all waiting for, 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 for this, this thing to happen, just as we are, in our wonderful little insular world here. And it, it, uh, it's fascinating to me, coming, coming from... Have you ever seen what kind of rains they get in Omaha? Oh, buddy... Have you ever seen every 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 three weeks in in the winter in in Circleville Ohio the snow suddenly is up to the roofs, and and during the summertime plagues of locusts one after the other gigantic thundering tornadoes I I remember a tornado that went right through a little town in Michigan and ten minutes after it went through knocked down seventeen houses nobody said anything about it. I don't know what they would do in New York if a tornado ever struck Times Square. I mean it would be the biggest thing we would be talking about it till well into January. We fantastic. And the only point that I'm making here is that most of the decisions about that outside world are re- are made right here in this little insular world. Along Madison Avenue and Lexington, there are thousands of guys who are sitting there figuring out what to say to the people in Circleville, Ohio, to make them feel even more insecure. And they're sitting out there stolidly in Circleville. The tornado goes past, and after a while, they can hear the buzzing of the locust wings. They can hear the chewing of the cutworm out on the tomato vines. And he knows about the real world out there we we here, you know, we live in this wonderful, soft, warm... We're all sitting... You know, I had this feeling. There's a funny feeling about this. I just got back uh, from a cruiser, from a a missile cruiser. And we're sailing 150 or 200 miles way out into the the Atlantic. We took off from Boston. And we went out into that darkness, that that eternal sea out, out there and you see the porpoises rising and falling, and you can see a whale blowing way off the starboard bow, and then night falls until finally there's nothing but that that dark inverted bowl, that eternal night. And let me tell you, I'm standing up there on the flying bridge, and I can see nothing but darkness. Billions and billions and billions of skies, all, all as far as one can see, and all the stars that you could ever imagine. And the ship is cutting through that black water at about 30 knots. You can hear an occasional banging somewhere, down, way down in the hole of this thing, or a creaking sound. Not a single light going... We're cutting through that water. You could feel the spray. And, and it's, a, it's a strange feeling. You say, I don't know which is the real world, this world of the ship, which is as, as insular as anything you can imagine, or that crazy world that I have just left. And as the ship comes steaming back, and slowly I'm getting drawn into this, I can hear the cacophony rising. You can hear the, the trumpeting and the bellowing and the booming and the crashing and the banging and the shrieking and the wailing and the moaning rising from the eternal, the, the eternal squadrons of the damned as I move back into Manhattan. And I'm once again in this fantastic, strange, whirling vortex, the whirlpool. I remember this, this story about... Now, I don't know which is the real world, you see. We're scuttering out there in the darkness and there's nothing but sky and water. And this, this steel hulk, speaking of hulks, this is F M new york Speaking of hulks, as Long John would say, it's time to take care of a bit of business. Filter... A- now, can you tell me which is the real world? Would you, before you put that away, Jimmy, just, just, just one second here. Now, we're talking about the real world. Now, now, hold it there for a second. I'll give you the cue. Now, remember this. I am standing on the flying bridge of a steel-gray cruiser like a long, like a long, sullen greyhound cutting through that black sea of the Atlantic, rising and falling, rising and falling eternally, the way it's risen and fallen, up and down, rising and falling and reaching. Oh, yes, reaching, always reaching, always reaching. Joseph Conrad, you know, I'm standing on the bridge of this thing, looking down at that black water and it's scuttling past us at 30, 32 knots, Something like that, and and I'm I'm looking at this water, and I realize that if if I ever if I ever somehow was washed overboard, or if I was walking along one of them, one of the rails, and and just slipped and skittered under the rail and out, I would be gone forever. There would be no coming back. At this time of night, at this place, and at this very instant, in this ocean, we were on the edge of the Labrador Current, and it was bitter, icy, cold water and you could feel that, 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 that steely ice pick kind of wind that cut along the side and over the, over the bridge and back over the conning tower and finally out over the fantail. Shh, And you could hear that wind hissing and whistling through those radar dishes just above us. Up and down we're going. And I'm looking out over in that water, and I can see an occasional white cap kicking up. You can hear the sea. And I'm thinking about what Joseph Conrad said. Conrad said, in effect, in a short story, a magnificent short story. No one ever wrote about the sea like Conrad, with the possible exception of Herman Melville. You know, all the all the British writers, all the all the European writers wrote more about society. The American writers in the early days of American letters dealt with almost, uh, almost uh, conclusively and, and eternally with those, those dark forces that lay just outside the, the guttering hiss of the campfire. And Melville was one of them. But, but Conrad, a British writer, also dealt with the sea. And his remark about the sea said, anyone who loves the sea, uh, and I'm, I'm wildly paraphrasing him here, anyone who loves the sea is crazy. Just the sea does not love. The sea knows no passion. The sea is purely mechanical. Purely and utterly and thoroughly mechanical. It's like it's like saying, I love this piece of sand. I love this rock. But with a difference. The sea is not only mechanical, but is a killer that rises and falls. And I'm standing on that on that that flying bridge, and I can feel just the touch of spray and that fantastic darkness and those billion stars above us, and I can see way over somewhere in my mind only, way over somewhere, this wild, cacophonic, fantastic, rising and falling hoopla, brouhaha, roar and pitch and steam of the thing I had just left, New York, that little faculty that booming, bellowing faculty of which I have been part of, caught up with, and snarled with, enmeshed by for so long I can't remember anything else now. And I'm standing on this flying bridge and I'm looking down at this water and I realize if I go in that water there is no more, ever. And there's a guy standing next to me. He says, did I ever tell you about the time this guy I knew that was on a British freighter. They were out in the South Seas. I got to talking about falling in the water. He says, it was this guy who was a third mate on a and a freighter out in the South Seas. He says, I knew the guy. And they had just they had just left a an island port and they were heading east. And they were in the darkest, deepest, most shark-ridden part of the of the Pacific. The water was warm and soupy, but oh so deadly. And it's it's four o'clock in the morning and the third mate is the officer of the day and he's making his rounds of the deck, just quietly walking around. He gets around to the fantail And and there were maybe two or three men awake on this ship. This little old freighter was beaten her way. And he looks down over the fantail. He's examining the screws. He's making sure that he's making a check. He's making sure that everything is working fine. When suddenly the ship took a slight roll when he didn't expect it, and he was pitched right off into that darkness. Over that fantail, into that hissing, steaming, boiling, shark-ridden Pacific water and he saw nothing but the lights of that ship retreating he was wearing a white t-shirt he was wearing a pair of white shorts and a pair of those low-cut gym shoes that's all he had he's floating there all by himself in that eternal grave and he sees he sees that ship going off into the distance and he knew he knew that they wouldn't find out that he was gone until they changed watches 4 hours hence he knew it And he knew that when they found this out, they would be four hours away. And he knew that the moment they found it out, they would probably turn around and steam back to where they thought perhaps he might have been lost. Four hours back, or thereabouts. So hence he had a minimum of eight hours to float in that deserted sea on one of the lesser-used, way-off-the-beaten-track, little-known sea routes. It would be as if you're lost on a gravel road a thousand miles away from the turnpike. Don't expect them to come and find you here. And so he lay on his back and looked up at the stars and just lay there. He knew that it was eight hours. He set his mind for eight hours and just quietly paddled and tried to stay above water. And that sea heaved. And sure enough, within ten minutes, a shark came nosing around in the darkness. Can you imagine a shark at four o'clock in the morning in the darkness in an unknown sea? And the, the first indication he had of the shark, it was so dark, was that it nuzzled him. Moved up and just went, boom. With that great, big, leathery nose up against his ribs. Boom. And he stiffened. And the instant you stiffen when you're trying to float on your back, you sink. Down he went. He 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 relaxed again and floated to the surface. Boom! This thing hit him again, and he lay there. He moved his left hand casually, easily, trying not to trying not to startle anything. Trying not to to, to tip the boat. And then when he got in the position, he just shot out with his foot. Socko! And he kicked the shark between the eyes just boom. And the shark moved back and began to circle. And every ten minutes thereafter, the shark would move in and just sort of nuzzle him. He would kick again. And then the shark was joined by a second shark. Until finally, as the rosy fingered dawn was quietly, quietly trickling its fingernails over that eternal grave, he saw that there were at least ten or twelve sharks just circling around looking at him. And the sun began to beat down. And then suddenly, without warning, the sharks disappeared, which was even more frightening. All together, they just... It's now about 7 o'clock in the morning. He's looking up at the sky, and he says, Well, they'll find out about it in just about an hour. I've been here three hours now. And he's getting sick. Have you ever bobbed up and down in a rowboat lying on your back, looking up at the sky... 20 minutes of that and you're getting ready you're getting ready to let go of every meal you've ever had in your life every meal you ever had and he's lying there nauseous and sick bobbing up and down bobbing up and down and the water is beginning to sting him you lie too long in salt water and that pacific salt water is even saltier than the salt water and you begin to get that 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 crawly feeling on your skin that feeling is as though death itself is somehow sneaking up on you, and death has a rough skin. Death is rough like mohair. And you lie there, and you look up, and he's looking out, and suddenly he sees this great hulk coming up beside him, an enormous hulk, something black is coming up out of the sea. I'm telling you a true story. And he looks, and it's a Turtle. Have you ever seen pictures of these giant Solomon Islands turtles? Here's this enormous sea turtle with great flippers. Now, these things are not carnivorous, really. They're just sort of, you know, they're just sort of like a ward healer. Kind of friendly and a little sneaky and untrusty. But at the same time, big. Oh, they throw their own weight. And this great big turtle just bobbed up next to him and swam slowly over and looked him right in the face raised his old head out of the water and looked at him. And then stuck his head down and bumped him like a great big, fat, two-ton beach ball. Boom. Down he went in the water again. Now he's really sick. He's got another mouthful of salt water. He bobs up, and the turtle just continues to nudge him along a little bit. Like this. And... He, he realizes that three more bumps like this, and he is done. He is done. He is waterlogged. He is soaked. He will not be able to come back. So he hangs onto the side of the turtle's shell so that the turtle can't get around in front of him again. And there are the two of them are out there in that giant eternal ocean, that sea. He's clinging to the side of the turtle, and he realizes now the turtle is giving him a little rest. The turtle is just quietly flapping his flippers, and once in a while going, Bleh. You know how turtles do. You have this problem. This this is a diet problem. It's an awful, awful bad diet. He's flapping his flippers, and this guy is hanging on to the flippers out there. And by this time, the sharks are back again. But they see now he has a friend, (laughs) and he is clinging to the turtle. And the turtle is just quietly going. And once in a while, the turtle submerges a little bit. He goes under, looks around, and this guy just quietly flows to the surface like a bobber. And he waits. And the turtle comes back. And this continues for about another hour and a half. And then, just as suddenly as it began, they disappeared turtle, sharks, and all. And that sun began to crack down. It was now about 10 o'clock in the morning. He was so sick, he couldn't see the sky. He couldn't see the water. he just lay on his back. He's been in the water now for six hours, only on the hope that this ship might come back. Only on the hope, that's all, a very slim one. And he didn't trust the skipper anyway, really. He's a no-good type. And so he lay on his back with that sun beating down, and he began to feel the skin peeling off of his, his forehead and his cheeks. The salt water was working on him. The sun was working on him. And once in a while, he would see high overhead, way, way high overhead, a flight of seabirds. You don't call to the terns. You don't call to the kestrals. And, and, And occasionally, an albatross goes slowly moving across the horizon, and he lay. And sure enough, 20 minutes before the eight hours were up, he sees coming over the horizon a tiny dot. It is his ship. And for the very first moment, he felt a tremendous, overwhelming, completely engulfing panic. He really felt panic. Panic because now he saw. He saw the very glimmerings of something that might save him. He saw that they might not save him, even more possibly, because the sea was a heavy, heaving sea. And if you've ever tried to see a tiny bobbing single head on a sea, this is, you know, this business of, of, of needles and haystacks is chicken feed and kid stuff. And he's bobbing. And he began to panic. And as he began to panic, he began to struggle. And as he began to struggle, he began to be sicker. And as he began to be sicker, everything began to spin and get blue and green, and he practically passed out just because of the panic. And then he saw that the ship was slowly beginning to come about. They were giving up the search. They had searched for four hours back over that route. They says, no, he's gone. Let's go. We're losing time. And then just at the last instant, believe it or not, somebody, a seaman, walking along the rail who wasn't even on lookout, looked out over the horizon and saw that tiny dot. They put down a boat, and they pulled him out of the water. And the instant they pulled him out of the water, he broke down completely, thoroughly, utterly, and completely. Didn't regain his senses for maybe ten days, three days after they'd been in port. And for weeks after that, he was still out at sea. For weeks after that, he was still getting bumped by turtles and nuzzled by whales. Which is the real world? Which is the real world? I'm out there on the flying bridge, and I see that black water scuttering past, and all I can hear is New York in the distance. All I can do 200X. is... 200X. Ah, 200X. New York! This 200X. is it! This is the real world! 200X. This is what we want! There's
4: a great yes. gasoline
3: from... That's the real world. Boy, it's good to be back here where it's real. Woo! Glad to be back. Glad to be with you, folks. I'll award you the brass figliggy with bronze oak leaf palm if you can tell me who it was who said, we could get together, folks. <laughs> you know, I saw a cartoon speaking of that. You see, the point that, that that we're trying to raise here is that we are living a life of such complete abstraction here in Manhattan. Such complete abstraction that any time anything that even smacks of the reel sneaks down Broadway and gets our pants legs wet, there is a fantastic panic that goes through us. What is that out there? Oh, we're pushing it too far. We're pushing it too far and a giant male fist one day is going to come. Can't you just hear that on a newscast? Ladies and gentlemen, from the WOR newsroom, we just have received reports that an enormous golden chariot was seen 4,000 feet over West Babylon, Long Island, driven by a man wearing a gold helmet, shooting bolts of thunder and lightning from his left hand as he drove his golden steeds in the general direction of Montauk Point. When we get further information, we'll return to this point. Stay tuned for further notes from the WOR newsroom about the Golden Chariot disaster. And now back to the top 40 favorites.
4: Precisely right I believe <laughs> and crystal and glare Oh it's so wonderful to be back here
3: in the real world You don't know how good I feel about it that back. It's good to be back here in the permanent world. You know, uh, speaking of the permanent world, uh, there was this friend of mine who uh, said, you know, when I was young, when I was a kid, he said, when I was a... a, a a flaming idealistic youth I used to listen to the to the politicians speak and incidentally I'd like to make a point here I think that one of the prevailing sicknesses that we have is to suspect deeply thoroughly and completely the politician and we have this thing you know all the time people are always politician no they are just us So don't put... I mean, a politician is just us. And he has no more phoniness in him, and he has no more goodness. He has no more omniscience in him than 90% of the rest of us, poor fellow um, treaders of this yellow brick road in the eternal search for the Emerald City. He's no more phony. He's no... I know know a thousand businessmen I wouldn't trust. I wouldn't trust beyond the the sight beyond the next bend, just past the water cooler. And they're the first ones who say, ah, you can't trust a politician. (laughs) I'm sitting there with a cab driver who has just euchred me out of 15 cents change by a neat, quick movement of the palm. He says, ah, you can't trust... I can't trust those politicians. And that phony has been knocking down ever since they took the tax off. And (laughs) all up and down the line... (laughs) And this friend of mine, you know, he's, he's, uh, it's interesting, you know, how we, how we identify or don't identify, we we want, somebody made the point in the village voice there I thought it was very well taken, I hope that somebody, I hope that uh, somebody picks this up, Uh, but that's, that's beside the point. We'll, we'll save that for tomorrow night. This friend of mine was, we're talking about the the whole thing, and I'm, I'm, I, have, I can't recall any time ever that I have become more deeply embroiled or more involved or more interested, not involved, unfortunately, I, you know, we're, we're only involved by just sort of standing around, but more interested in what is happening in the world than today. I think we're living in historical times, really historical times. All times are historical, but sometimes are, are, are more than others. Uh, mean more than others. It's just like your daily life. You might have four or five moments in your day that are much more significant than the other moments that have led up to it and that follow it. And I think that we're living in a momentous, truly a momentous period now. There's no question about it. It's been, it's been moving this way for probably 40 years. And now it's it's kind of coming to a climax. And we are, we are in battle and we don't know which way to turn. You notice that hardly any, any political man, any politician really talks about the fact that hardly anywhere in the world can you find a real friend? That everywhere, every place you look, backs are being turned on us, in spite of the loud assurances to the contrary. Now, this is a, this is a fascinating thing to see. Not so much that backs are being turned on us, because at every point in history there has been a patsy. We're, we're, we're patsy number one right now. And and ten years from now, I'm quite sure that there will be another patsy that the world will turn its back on. Because always, always, man has had to have something to stick pins into to, to somehow give him a sense that the rottenness that's happening in his life is somebody else's fault. We've always have had to have this thing. It's a patsy. We're, we're the patsy now. But have you noticed that hardly anybody really talks about it except in the broadest of generalities because we're living in such an interesting dream world we're living in such a such a fascinating world I was listening to a politician the other day talk incessantly about how many more cars people have today how many more television sets how how many more breezeways what are you people complaining about these professional gloom dealers are constantly he says and he goes on and this is a great leader a great leader and and I I kept hearing the echoes of some guy standing on the side of a of a limpid pool in Rome. And he's he's standing up there with his long robes hanging around him and he's waving his hand in the air and he's saying, "What are you complaining about? What are you talking about these the, the sore heads are always coming up talking about these barbarians look. You had more grapes per capita last year than ever before. More men can afford Three or more Nubian handmaidens today than ever before. What are you complaining about? Under my administration? It... And it goes on and on. I keep hearing the echoes of the same thing. Always. <laughs> and this friend of mine is listening to the speeches going on, and he says, you know, when I was young, when I was a kid, by young he means in his teens, and his early 20s, he says, when I was a kid, I used to say, isn't it, wow, he says, isn't it, isn't it terrible that these politicians don't believe what they say? I mean, isn't it awful that they don't believe what they say? And he had the, he had the feeling that all this political talk, you know, was just talk. You know, they didn't believe it. And then he says, now I listen, and I say, wouldn't it be awful if they believed it? Isn't it terrible if they really believed this stuff? Oh. <laughs> and so, I mean, it's, it's all part of the, uh, the wonderful dream world in which we're all involved. And hardly any of us, you know, really feel an involvement. We all feel as though we're onlookers. And so we've come to the point now where we have great crowds of comedians, quote, going over the scene who are, who are the, uh, the, the so-called dispassionate onlookers, who, who, who just, you know... And today, of course, that's the easiest kind of humor. You can take any any situation, any condition, any man, any moment in any man's life, and since all of us are frail, and since all of us have the inadequacy of the ungodlike, you can make humor of any moment in any man's life. It's a simple, easy process. I remember seeing a cartoon. In fact, it's, it's in the current issue. It's a beautiful cartoon. One of, one of the few really meaningful cartoons that I have seen in, in Esquire in a long time. And it's, it's a full-page cartoon. It's in the August issue. I have cut this out and I, it is going on my wall of my office. And here it is. It shows the raging fires of hell, the inferno. Great roaring flames and dark blackness, and you could see the lost souls sailing out. And, and there in the foreground, in the foreground, you see a boat crossing the River Styx. And you could see those angry waters. <laughs> and 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 those those hooded, shrouded souls, those damned souls weeping and wailing, and you see you see this fiend pulling along in the back, and sitting in the front, sitting up there in the bow, is Dante, looking very looking very cool, looking very casual, and he's watching, he's sitting back, and he's looking at those damned souls moving into the eternal darkness. And he's sitting back there on his duff, with his legs crossed, and one of the poor, one of the poor, blighted, unfortunate is looking at him with a, a harassed face, and Dante, with a slight smile, is saying, "Oh, I, I don't mind it really. I'm, I'm, I'm only here to gather material for a book." <laughs> Whither goest indeed, O thou mankind? It's like, you know, speaking of of Dante and the inferno and all... Did you read this little news? This is symbolic of our time. We have this great desire to do it. And, And nobody knows why. All of mankind has. And occasionally one poor soul will do it. Listen to this one from San Francisco. San Francisco. Everett Wong, Everett Wong beat the odds. On July 6, his car plunged over Devil's Slide, an ocean bordering cliff south of San Francisco where many a motorist has been killed in the past. Wong's car rolled over and over and over for 170 feet and ended in a crumbled, smashed mass of metal, a terrible, misshapen heap. But Wong painfully crawled out alive. He should have been killed. An officer at the scene said, I've never seen anything like it. Wong's wife, Alice, noted that he became despondent immediately after the accident. Monday, the body of the 36-year-old real estate man was found in a cement courtyard below his apartment. To gain death, he had cheated. Wong had jumped 35 feet, hopping over his air conditioner as he left.
4: Over W.O.R. Radio, your station for news. James McCarthy reporting. For up-to-the-minute reports, stay tuned to this station. Now, the news. Well, President Eisenhower was forced to cancel his trip back east today due to that young lady by the name of Brenda. That story from Sanford Marshall in New York.
3: The East Coast is in the throes of a tropical storm. Waterlogged New Yorkers went to their phones this morning to discover why and heard this.
4: Tropical Storm Brenda, causing heavy rains, high winds, and high tides until early afternoon with partial clearing and diminishing winds and subsiding tides later this afternoon. Yes, Tropical Storm
3: Brenda was moving up the east coast at about 35 miles an hour, but she is losing her tropical
4: characteristics. She is now just a windy, wet storm, but she'll be spreading that rain, rough wind, and high tides for the next 12 to 38 hours. This is Sanford
3: Marshall in New York. Now back to James McCarthy in Washington.
4: And we'll have more news in a moment. On the political scene, pressure is due from both sides of the congressional fence when it reconvenes next month, but the Democrats have made it known today there will be no stalling around about it. Ed Semprini reports from Kennedy Headquarters, Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Running mates Senators John F. Kennedy and Lyndon B. Johnson today singled out medical care for the aged, housing, aid to education, and mutual appropriations as the key issues on the legislative calendar for the forthcoming session of Congress. The Democratic teammates met newsmen at Hyannis Fort together for the first time since the nomination's in Los Angeles. Johnson attacked the administration for what he called its lack of foreign policy, defense, and new ideas. Regarding the GOP convention, Johnson said... The big difference between 1860 and 1960 for them is Lincoln. This is Ed Semprini reporting from WOCB, Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Now back to James McCarthy in Washington. Well, America, in case you're lolling around the house right about now and thinking how nice and calm it is, here's something that should shake you out of your doldrums. The Quiet War is back on in Korea. At last reports, a South Korean destroyer escort tangled with a commie North Korean gunboat four miles at sea today and sent the rocks right down, uh, sent the reds, we should say, right down to the bottom. In a naval gunfight, which lasted about five minutes, the rock craft en- gave the, engaged the enemy in what is the first confirmed battle and the first sinking of a commie vessel since the 1953 armistice ending the Korean War. Shortly after the destroyer sent the gunboat to the bottom, a spray of three communist torpedo boats appeared on a retaliation mission. No reports on that action, though. No. That's the news to now. James McCarthy reporting.
3: And if the truth were out, I suspect that most of us see, most of us understand life as a kind of gigantic foot race. Billions and billions and billions of us plunging along, thundering along, charging forward, and a great cloud of dust that rises up into the sky and glints in the yellowish sun. A fantastically exhausting race. And a race that seems to have no end at all, but just a race. Everyone is thundering along together. And once in a while, one poor, unfortunate, or two or three are thrown off onto the curbstone to lie gasping and, of course, completely outdistanced within the next 30 seconds. This is the concept of life that I suspect is the most valid concept for the New Yorker of today. A gigantic foot race. And, 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 and have you ever had the feeling that if you ever stopped to look at the sky, just to look, you know, that they would catch up with you and pass you, go right on past, thundering on past. I have this friend who every time he goes on vacation has little earphones plugged into his ears. He's connected to his office by a set of radio phones. His boat is never out of touch with the world, ever. And constantly they're bringing messages to him, constantly, because he wants to stay in the race and at the same time look at the sky, which, of course, is a... Th- Complete impossibility. Because the kind of sky that I am speaking of is the sky that has no messages being brought to you by runners. And this is the sky that we're all afraid of. I can't get out of touch. I, I, I have this friend who once in a while is called out of New York for a couple of weeks for military service or something. He's the only guy I know in military service that is in constant touch night and day with his agent. He's the only guy I know who gets permission from his first sergeant to call his agent during guard duty. And and, and his his answering service every two hours has been instructed to call the post-service club to let him know whether Zanuck has called. He is never out of touch. The foot race goes on and the great thundering herd, the crashing and the roaring. And yet, you know, there are two kinds of people, really. There are the people who, who once in a while, take their mind away from looking at the sky and try half-heartedly to get into the race because you see there is something in the air that makes it indecent to spend your life looking at the sky not only indecent but vaguely immoral and so once in a while you look up at the sky and you pull down and you say I really should get there. and then you make a half-hearted attempt you call your agent is there anything charlie oh good to hear from you again where you been well I've been around uh, you know and, of course, the implication when he says where, where you been?", says, oh, oh, you poor sap, and you can hear the thundering roar of the of the hoofbeats going through his office as you're in touch once again with the great race, and you know you can never catch up. you know Have you ever seen a dog race that's one of the saddest of all races to see, you know, because the goal is out in front of them. When you see a horse race, there's a, a complete meaninglessness to a horse race. I mean, just bl- 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 they run past. There's no, no meaning. Uh, and, and we like to believe that one horse has a rivalry t- inside of him to beat another. No, 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 no. Come on now. That's that poor old idiotic thing that Walt Disney started years ago, that animals are really people in disguise and are somehow better. No, that's, that's silly. Get it out of your mind, out of your skull. Peggy cats are not people. No, no, no. They are carnivores, dear, and given the chance they will carnivore on you, uh, which is another story. They're just too small to get away with it. Now, now, incidentally, this is another thing. We have a concept of friends, you know. <laughs> it's like all of us think the natives love us because they come up nuzzling up to the, the little house we've established in the jungle to hand them aspirins and, and rock and roll records. But given the alternative, they would come nuzzling up with something else. And if, you're not, if you don't believe this, take a look at the current Life magazine and see all the people being chased over the veldt in Africa. <laughs> Literally being chased. <laughs> it's just a matter of choice, you see. The cat has no choice but to be this friendly little thing that curls in your... But given another, say, 200 pounds, the cat is another story indeed, my dear. <laughs> another story. But that's all beside the point, you see. The horses are just things, you know. They run. But you you go to a dog race. You see, I learned a lot about this problem of the thundering herd one time when I was inadvertently admitted to a dog track outside of Miami at one point in my career when I was working for the government. I had risen to the rank of PFC rapidly by diligent study, and I was allowed a few hours off from the tether. And somehow or other, I wound up in a dog track, of all places when you're in the Army to be. I mean, this is more of... I can't tell you how symbolic this was. How meaningful it became. It was could very well have been one of the turning points of my life. Have you ever wondered how in the world you got to be what you are? Where the turning points really were? How come you didn't wind up uh Harlow Curtis or something? I mean, he's obviously no more brighter than no bright Hey, speaking of that, did you read that fantastic thing on the on the front page of the New York Times, the triumph of PR over the truth? Incidentally, you know what public relations is? You know, most people think public relations is is, is is advertising. It's completely different. It's the opposite, you see. Advertising takes that little itsy-bitsy thing that you think is better that you have than other people have, and they blow it up into a fantastic blimp. You see, this is advertising. Oh, no. PR is the opposite. I mean, when you got this rotten thing that's hanging on you like a barnacle, PR steps in and makes it good. You see, they, they do the opposite. Now, this is quite true, you know. For example, when, when there's a strike in an enormous plant, you don't think the ad men step into you and take out ads about... No, it's the PR men who say that there's just a little momentary riffle in our friendly, wonderful, happy family, but we're all really sitting around the same table, pitching the same... Oh, yeah, that's right. It's all part of PR. And it was this beautiful story that kind of exemplifies the dream world of our, our day. There was the president. Did you see it on the front page of the Times? I almost fell sideways right into the right right off the curb on 57th Street when I got this one. It was the funniest piece of Americana that I've seen in a long time. It seems that they nabbed the president of one of the major automobile concerns with 450,000 bucks in his jeans, <laughs> and, and the PR men immediately stepped in and said, uh, "Mr. L. B. Watanabe has arrived at a settlement with the Watanabe Motor Company for $450,000 which apparently came about through a mistake in bookkeeping and a mistake in aims. We have reached a settlement Mr. Watanabe has resigned. I could see the settlement. Can't you see them dragging this guy in from his plush office, kicking and screaming, two FBI men on each side, and one guy behind him with a sawed-off shotgun, and they drag him in, and the money is all taken out of his $450,000 by a misunderstanding of the bookkeeping methods. And they lay it out, and they say, all right, Charlie, now what? It's either the pokey or hand the dough over. He hands the dough over, and a settlement has been reached. (laughs) a settlement. This is a settlement in our time. You see, it somehow sounds like good, solid, substantial citizens have gotten down and sat down and talked it over, you see. Hitler pointed it out, you know, a long time ago. I must say he did. Hitler said that that the way that big people can get by with it is that little people almost always live lives of complete honesty, and cannot comprehend people above them being anything other than they are. Only in spades, he must be more honest than I am. Whereas it's almost invariably quite the opposite, quite the opposite, and that's how they got there, you see. <laughs> being a realist, and, not, and by the way, realism has, is not to be confused with cynicism, my dear. So don't get, don't fall into that trap. I mean, this is an old, an old canard. It is constantly trotted out by these guys who say, oh, those gloom, professional gloom dealers. No, it's not the same thing, you know. And so anyway, I'm in this, I'm in this track. I'll to, I'd like to describe, most of you probably never seen a dog race. Let me tell you how a dog race works. Whippets and greyhounds run. And they have this track, it's a little itsy-bitsy track in a way, you see. And there's all those lights and all these sweating people are sitting around. And they bring the dogs out, and they sort of trot them around back and forth on leashes, and these are just plain, ordinary dumb dogs, and they're very dumb. Oh, yes, the greyhounds and the whippets are the dumbest creatures this side of an amoeba. And they walk back, I know it's terrible to admit that there's such a thing as a dumb dog, my dear, but there are many dumb dogs, just as there are dumb people. Uh, It's interesting to note that the porpoise is about 14,000 miles above the dog in, in the scale of intellectual values. And and very well could be several points above man, incidentally. In fact, I was aboard this cruiser, and there was a whole school of porpoises going alongside of us, giving us the old bazoop every five minutes. They'd come out of the water and look at this thing and give us the business again. Man was right back after it. This poor old cruiser had been mothballed with the best of intentions to cut out war. And now we've taken off all the shades and we're back at it again. And the porpoises go on. I mean, who is right, you know? (laughs) Uh, poor clowns. And so I'm, I'm I'm sitting at the dog track, sweating away, wearing my full-dress uniform, my PFC suit, looking out there, and I have my 75-cents bet on number 7, which was a thin, Rayleigh, ribby-looking creature, very moth-eaten. And they were walking them back and forth out there. I had never seen a dog race. Let me describe it. And all these dogs were brought together in a little, sort of a little mob, and, and put into little shoots, and their, their 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 little their little tethers were taken off, and there was a ringing of a bell, boing. No, it's not cruel at all, my dear. No, no. Uh, wait till I tell you what happens. There's no cruelty involved. I mean, when is there going to be a society called the Society the, for the Prevention of Cruelty to us? I mean, to get us out of this crummy race. I mean, that's what I want. I mean, I'm talking about the great race. You know what the? I know what. You know, have you ever had anybody call you on the phone and say, "How's it going, Charlie"? How is it going? Well, I'm going to ask you, how is it going? You know what the it is that I'm talking about? Mm Mm-hmm. Wouldn't it be fantastic if it was taken off of your back? If you could forget all those miserable things, you know? when When you're three years old, they begin to drum into you that ambition is the soul of honor and goodness. And as a matter of fact, almost invariably, the world has been undone by ambition. All the worst tyrants in history were the most ambitious people in history. Every one of them, every last single one. Do you remember when Castro came in? I don't want political office, he said. I don't want to have anything to do with the army. I'm going to come back and study law again. <laughs> yes, sir, that's my baby. Oh, sir, don't mean maybe. And, and, we're, and each one of us is just as bad give you 30 seconds in the boss's chair, and you would become a fiend. Believe me, an absolute, utter, and complete fiend. It's inside within every one of us. Don't think for a minute you're any different. And the reason you're so wonderful is because you've gotten nowhere. Believe me, you have not been given the chance to wield the axe. Given the chance, look out. Nellie, bar the door. And if you couldn't wield the axe, you would never get into that seat, ever. It's just the rule of thumb of the nature of the jungle. But nevertheless, I'm sitting there, and I'm watching these dogs, and here is the significant point. Suddenly, up pops in front of these dogs a rabbit, a phony rabbit. Let me tell you, it was the phoniest rabbit I've ever seen, and, I, baby, I've seen some phony rabbits in my day. (laughs) I've worked for some. (laughs) As a matter of fact, I happen to work now for a genuine rabbit, but a rabbit, you know. And so, nevertheless, (laughs) I mean, I, i got nothing against rabbits, but then again, I've got nothing for rabbits either. I can tell you this very definitely. I mean, I can take rabbits or leave them alone, you know? And so this this rabbit popped up out of the track and started to run on a track, a little metal mechanical deal. And these dogs took out like, like idiots after this rabbit. Obviously a mechanical rabbit. And they're running like mad. And the rabbit is going... And everything is hot. And all the people jumping up and hollering. And the rabbit is about... Two jumps ahead of the dogs, and every time the dogs begin to catch up, the guy advances the speed of the rabbit a little bit. He's got a control board, and they run even faster. And then the rabbit goes fast, and they run like mad. And they'll finally, they all go across the finish line, and the rabbit disappears into the ground. And they lead him off the track, sweating, waiting for the next heat. Next time they'll get that rabbit, each one of them says as he's led into his pen. Doesn't that sound familiar? Doesn't that sound familiar, Daddy? Whose life are we describing? Huh? You know what happens when one, of the rabbits, when one of the rabbits is caught by a dog? I'll tell you. It happens quite often. Oh, yes. The dog catches up with the rabbit, and he merely gets knocked on his duff. It is an electrical rabbit that has four electrodes sticking out of the back end, and as soon as the dog catches up, pow, on his keister he gets up and shakes his head and starts to run again. Which somehow, you is precisely what we're all involved in. Yes, sir, that's my baby. Speaking of rabbits, this is W-O-R-A-M at FM New York. And we will be here until, you know. I mean, you know, you can't, you see, the point being here, there is no point, actually. There's no point. I just told you the story of the dogs. I mean, I could just see this little old lady out in Staten Island. What is this idiot talking about? Would you please change the dial, Elmer, and get me some good music? Get her some good music, please. Good American music. Yes. Ah, yes, madam. Good American music for you. There. There we are. Isn't that better, madam? This makes sense, doesn't it? Good sound sense. That's much better, Elmer. You've finally gotten rid of that idiot. Heaven's sakes, I don't know how they allow people of that kind to get on the radio, these beatnik types. Always oh, talking about dog races. I can't stand it. I love dogs. Obviously, Madame loves people. And Shepard persists in speaking of them. And the poor, senseless rabbits that they pursue endlessly, endlessly, endlessly through thousands of miles of Walt Disney film. With the same scenery going past them hour after hour. Would you please get that idiot off who keeps interrupting the music? Yes, madam, poor vous. Just remember. Ladies and gentlemen, in this day, in this moment of our history. 1960, we are playing the Everything is Going to Be All Right polka by the ten million sighing somatic strings, lulling you eternally in a bath of ambiotic fluid. Of course you've got more automobiles than ever before, and more air conditioners too. There's no question about that. And, and you're more, of course, certainly more secure than you ever were. You've made your third payment already on that plot in that friendly, that friendly eternal resting place out on Long Island, close to the bus station, where your friends could. And it, by the way, it's non-segregated. It's purely democratic. But you have assured yourself of a preferred position by buying early. Oh, don't stop. Don't, 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 don't stop. Oh, can you imagine the terrible sight of an American who has suddenly been weaned from his mood music? Is out there on that dark, cruel sea? Shall I, shall I tell you the awful truth, my dear? That on our warships that are plunging out over that dark, that dark stygian main, there is a loudspeaker in every gun turret that plays mood music. Yes, I'm telling you the truth. And they're also playing The Barbarians Are At The Gates Walks. For all of you who have gathered, gathered to dream for just a moment, for a year, for a decade, maybe for a century. This is
4: such pretty music.
3: You feel better now, it's so nice to get out of the rat race. Have you noticed that I'd like to point out one thing. Have any of you ever seen rats racing? And we eternally call it the rat race. Actually, what you're talking about is the people race. I've never once seen a rat race another rat as long as I've been around and I've been around, you know, baby. <laughs> I've been around. Speaking of being around and getting there, the next time you fly the coop, or at least make the poor, pitiful attempt, you know, you can never do it. Don't think for a moment you can. No matter where you go, you are you. And, And the saddest sight is the sight of a tourist a million miles away from home trying to find another him. Trying to find another him, you see. He stands and looks at the Fontana de Trevi, and the great waters are rising and falling, and he's wearing his Tom McCann shoes, and he is still literally, thoroughly and completely him. He will never be anything other than that. He is always an eternal observer, as we all are. And so the poor Italian coming out of the out of the dank little doorway, just outside of, let's say, the the, the square of Tritone, he comes out and he has his little postcards, and he looks at you, and he he himself can never escape being himself. We are eternally this way. I would suggest that the next time you make the poor, pitiful attempt, you do it via Lufthansa. At least you will be lulled for a moment, 14,000 miles above the sea. No wonder we love jet flying. It's the most unreal kind of flying there is. I mean, you don't even see the ground in a jet. You are are totally and thoroughly in limbo. You are uh, you know what I'd like to do I would I wish some airline and I'm going to make this suggestion you know I sat with a Lufthansa executive and we talked about this thing and and they have some of these these beautiful old DC6s I love the DC6 and these beautiful old Super Connies, which I think is the is the most graceful of all aircraft I wish they somewhere somebody would dig out a biplane a real biplane with open cockpits Two open cockpits, you know. A biplane, in case those of you who are completely bred and born in the jets and don't know what a biplane is, a biplane is a thing that has, it's, I'll tell you, it's, it's like if you took a, a piece of the Venetian blind, you know, and you cut it off and it's got two things sticking out from each side, and it's got a great big thing sticking up in the back and wheels hanging down. I'd like to ride in an airplane again that has wheels hanging down, you know. And get in the, I'd get in the front cockpit, and they'd, they'd strap me in, you see, thoroughly, complete, just strap me in with my leather jacket and a great big cloud of sheepskin up around my neck. And then I would have my leather helmet pulled down over my eyes, great big goggles, and I would sit there, and, the, and, the, and the, of course there would be a white silk handkerchief that would flow back in the breeze. And I'd sit there, and the, and the pilot would get behind me, and he'd say, we're taking off. And he'd holler, contact! And the, and the mechanic would grab a hold of the prop. <laughs> and, and by George, we'd be flying. <laughs> oh, and away we go. Can you imagine what what a, what a sensation it would cause if one air I don't care what airline it would be, just name it, Lufthansa, TWA, KLM, announces that they have a biplane flight now available for the true aficionados who really want to do it. You know, there would be a line of 8 million guys Waiting to fly via open biplane, I mean, I mean the, the dangerous kind of plane that could very well be lost off Greenland forever. I I would be the first in line. I don't know why, but I would be there. Wouldn't it be a tremendous thing? And I'm sitting there talking to this guy. Says, you know, why don't they keep a couple of these old, these old, these old, you know, the real airplanes on the routes for people who like to sit for 14 hours, you know, who just like 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 the old steamers. I, I, I can't think of anything better than to take a, a long, one-week steamship ride. Really, seriously. Or, or to fly for 14 hours over this airplane, this airplane that just quietly flies along. But you get into a jet. Now, I've flown into the interior of Europe on a jet. It's a strange sensation. To those of you who have never flown a jet, it is the most unreal sensation that you can imagine. Tur- it is really indicative of our time. Th- that flying to Europe has been reduced, I think to uh, a kind of, uh, you know, like throwing away a, an old used Kleenex or something. You don't even think twice about it. Let me tell you about the first time I saw Kleenexes. You know, it's funny. I remember these. some of these things make make a vivid impression. I had this teacher named Miss Shields who was very advanced. Uh, Miss Shields had already in that period given up Winnie the Pooh and was deep in, in Little Orphan Annie and Annie Rooney. And she, was, she used to read us out uh, by the hours. She used to read us Raggedy Ann and Raggedy Andy. And I remember one day Miss Shields, who, who, had, who had kind of yellow, you know, the kind of hair that, that, that is wiry, that sticks out like a great cloud from the head? Uh, she was always wearing a kind of a brillo pad made out of hair. And Miss Shields is, is rimless glasses and thin and transparent. And Miss Shields is eternal. She was the only one i ever known, ever, ever known, really, who could honestly weep over Raggedy Ann and Raggedy Annie, literally weep. And great tears would flow down from behind her rimless glasses when she's reading the story of the balloon fairies. And she's, <laughs> yeah, I mean she was the, first, she was really ahead of her time. I mean she could have been a good, she was, she could have been a woman commentator today, way ahead of her time. And so Miss Shields is standing up there reading us Raggedy Ann and Raggedy Andy. And and I'm noticing that as she finishes each each paragraph that was particularly poignant, she would take something out of her purse, a white handkerchief, and blow her nose. That lady-like nose blow, you know, that little little wiping back and forth. And she had one of these razor-like noses that bent from side to side when she would wipe. This is a librarian nose. And she would wipe it back and forth, and then she would tuck it into her, into her purse again. And she would go, and Raggedy Ann said to Raggedy Andy, oh my, the pirates are after us now. Please come away with me, Raggedy Ann. And she would read this, and she would go on, and she would blow her nose again. And then occasionally she would reach into her purse and take out another one and drop the others into the wastebasket. I couldn't imagine what she was doing. I came from a bandana handkerchief, a real bandana family. Big red things and yellow and green. I, I haven't had a good blue bandana in years, and and this is the kind of fan. And she's throwing these things away. Do you know what I did after class? I'll tell you exactly. It's an awful thing. This is a real confession. I looked in the wastebasket to see what they were, and they were paper. I had never seen Kleenex before, and it was kind of a shock. You know, it was the beginning of the plastic world. And I went home and I said, "Hey, Mom, you know, Miss Shields blows her nose in paper." I had the wrong idea. I thought it was another kind of paper, actually. And she says, well, yeah, she's using Kleenex. I said, Kleenex? What's Kleenex, Ma? She says, she's standing over there by the sink in her rump-sprung bathrobe, and she says, Kleenex is paper handkerchiefs, Ma. I said, but doesn't Ms. Shields have real handkerchiefs? She says, Kleenexes are real handkerchiefs. I said, Ma, they're paper. She says, but they're real handkerchiefs. I says, but what about my handkerchief? My, I take my bandana out of my pocket. She says, that's a bandana. I said, but it's a handkerchief. She says, no, it's a bandana. Miss Shields is using Kleenexes. My mother was going the way of all flesh. And little did I know it. And everywhere, everywhere, every, of course, it was the beginning, you see. It was the beginning of the slow transposition to where today now you can buy a sweater that is called Virgin Nylon. <laughs> you see that it, it's it gotten rid of that old crummy wool stuff that we used to have you know that old miserable cashmere and and now we have virgin nylon can you imagine a guy who can't afford virgin nylon <laughs> And so please please don't 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 leave me hey hey ed hey hey. Ooh, don't leave me don't leave me don't i I, I need a little shot of dream here that's better. Give it a little while. That'll make it there. That's what we need. Lighting. You see, the truth comes out in the most unexpected of all places and tells about our deep-seated fears. As you know, almost all of you are aware that, that, that womankind has almost completely abdicated her role in the, in the world of today. Almost completely. But her conscience will not allow her to do so. Man himself, and I'm speaking in the small letter, man. He, too, has abdicated his role. His role of the slayer of saber-toothed tigers, the cracker of clamshells, the ranter and the roarer against the great bolts of lightning that come out of that darkening sky. He no longer rants. He no longer roars. He no longer feels the dark, the dark, cutting surge of overwhelming anger. This was man's role. Woman's role has too been abdicated. And so we must somehow gain, if possible, the vicarious substitute. And so man after man buys magazines where women fold out in a three-color spread that remind him of the days when he really chased real women. And he calls it Playboy. Women buy magazines that remind them that there were once days when they were women and they grated cabbages and they broke eggs in the bowls. And so they too remind themselves by hanging bronze-plated cabbage graters on the walls of imitation pine-paneled kitchens. You walk through the kitchen on your way to the Chinese restaurant night after night In many east side apartments, the kitchen has become a repository for a kind of museums of consciences. And hanging on the walls are great bronze-plated pans that once were used for boiling potatoes, and are now only used to look at. I even know one chick who has a bronze-plated meat grinder. How basic can you get the kind that Aunt Min used to stand and shove great chunks of beef sat and grind up the bone and the gristle and all for Uncle Carl's hamburger. She did it just to bug him, because she'd thrown his teeth down the air shaft months before, and he just sat there. One time he gummed one of her hamburger balls for over four weeks, just gummed it and sucked. But Aunt Min knew what she was doing. It was a war of attrition all the way. And I know this chick on the east side who has a bronze-plated meat grinder it's right out of the american home a handy decorating hint you see oh yes i foresee the day when automatic washers will become the the antique of our time the automatic washer because there is a man who brings the linens and who leaves there is a man who brings the dish towel and then leaves the dish i know apartments where the dish towel hangs only as an old artifact just hangs on the wall there, and it's beautifully embroidered. It hasn't seen a dish other than those dishes that are hanging on the wall for years. It's like the appendix. And so womankind has too abdicated her role, just as man no longer finds it possible to be angry, to stalk the wary saber-toothed tiger next to the water cooler. We have both abdicated, and the truth is coming out. Please, give me a little more of that truth music. Truth, American version. Did you, read, did you read the little news note that came of all places in the Trenton Evening Times? Friday, May 20th, 1960. I have included this in my great catalog of how things really were. So that 10,000 years from now when people dig up our art, they get no idea what the world is like looking at Henry Moore, believe me. They'll get no idea looking at Picasso. But they will get an idea of how we are when they read this. Listen to this. Speaking of womankind abdicating her place and mankind abdicating his, we have to have a symbolic, a symbolic conscience, though, that reminds us of once we, once we were, this we were. A little note from the Trenton Evening Times. I read, I quote, Have you ever noticed that more and more of the gasoline signs hanging outside service stations are oval in shape? Have you ever noticed that? And many of them are pure white and glow-in-the-dark, oval-shaped. What does that remind you of? (laughs) Yes, sir Bob. It is no accident. An industrial designing firm applied Freudian psychology and concluded that since over 60% of the customers are female, the gasoline signs ought to appeal to them. And what does that ovoid shape remind you of? It's a three letter word that often pops up in New York Times crossword puzzle and begins with an O. The second letter is a V. <speaking in Spanish> the oval shape was chosen because it is said to quote, and we are quoting the industrial firm, a symbol of the mother relationship, the egg and the home. <speaking in Spanish> As Mother whistles down US one in her Jag one forty D,
4: Mother, Mother,
3: Mother, we salute thee. Would you uh, please fill her up, young man? And mother reaffirms her motherhood once again to the tune of $4.61 worth of 105 proof. Have you noticed gasoline is becoming a Freudian thing? Have you noticed this? Oh, yes, gasoline is no longer sold on its its octane or what it does. Oh, indeed. There is a series of TV commercials that scared the wits out of me. It shows this desperate-looking guy. sitting there, and he's got a crew cut and a low forehead. Believe me, he's got a low forehead. Have you seen this guy? He's a desperate... And he's got this nervous-looking chick sitting next to him, and he's looking around very, very, uh, very impatiently. He's looking for the guy, obviously. He's looking for the gas station attendant, and he's pulled into a a gas station. He's looking around, That nervous, irritated, rotten look that you see on the face of everyone running after the mechanical rabbit. And the announcer says, Men on the go, men of action, choose Watanabe gasoline every time. And he's the guy that I'm always afraid of every time I'm driving. He's that guy that goes, whistling, you know, the cuts, rah, rah, that, that, that that fantastic character that leaps from stop sign to stop sign and from stop street to stop street. He now has a special gasoline made for him. La-da-da-dee. Men on the go. And there will be a gasoline one day, believe me, that will be sold to the contemplative man chooses Walden gasoline. And it'll show a guy driving along to the countryside thinking beautiful thoughts. And then there will be one, there will be one soul to the concerned man. And there'll be this guy reading, he's reading the New York Times editorial, and you see him. And, and coming out of his TV set next to them is the is the grim, concerned face of Edward R. Murrow. The concerned man uses realist gasoline. your eye out, baby, for the gas station of your choice. (laughs) Be sure it has that right. Of course, you can't help, but you know, everywhere. Everywhere. A guy said to me the other day, he says, you know, has it ever occurred to you that that we all might be the victims of subliminal propaganda of one kind or other? And, And he says, wouldn't it be something, wouldn't it be fantastic if somebody decided to use this I said, but we wouldn't know it if they were. Remember that's what the whole idea of subliminal is, Jack. He says, Yeah. He looked at me. Yeah. And he was wearing his washable, wearable suit. And he was wearing his washable, wearable life. And he was walking striding into the sunset on Madison Avenue. And you could just you could just see the you could just see the very edges, the very tips of the great the great rivers on either side of us. Way down, when you look west and you look east, you can see those eternal waters. And speaking of the eternal waters, do you remember the story of that ship? That ship that that sank out here in the East River just a few weeks ago? The ship was coming along, you know, at 3 o'clock in the morning. Get this now. This is right here in the heart of good old friendly Manhattan. And you, of course, are aware that that the street department now get this, Jack. The Street Department is still maintaining hunting teams who spend their nights hunting throughout the water supply system of New York, dark deep under the subways, way down under your feet, hunting alligators. Do you know that there are alligators living right under the right under the surface of Manhattan? Everyone says, like, Oh no, that can't be. Oh yes it is. And you know where they came from? There was a tremendous fad, if you remember, a few years ago, people buying alligators and sending them back from Florida. Uh, you remember those? For a dollar and sending them back to cousin men in the Bronx. Yes. Well, what happened after you, after you have an alligator around the house for a while, you get kind of tired of the look on its face. And, and what do you do with an alligator? You don't throw them out, you know, you just toss them out in the garbage. Well, what happened with most people is what where most, you know, it's a funny little thing. Yes, they wound up in the water supply. Guess how? But the thing about an alligator baby is that he's amphibious. And more than that, he's highly adaptable. And that water supply system down under the streets of New York is kept at a constant temperature, you know. It does not freeze down there. And so they grew to great size until this very day. Right under your feet, 14-foot alligators are stalking. And little men with little lights on their helmets are looking for them. Just thought you ought to know. And so that that ship was going along the East River at 3 o'clock in the morning right by the U.N. building, the central heart of the nerve system of all assembled humanity, when suddenly something on the bottom of the river, something on the bottom of, of, of the East River, that friendly old river out there, ripped the bottom of this boat right out. Do you know how much of a rip it made in it? There were 20 compartments in this ship, which was almost 800 feet long. It ripped a line right down the middle of the ship through 16 of the compartments, like a gigantic can opener. And at last reports, they still hadn't found what it was. Under the East River. All the guy could say, we're sinking, Charlie! And they drove it up on the beach right next to the, (laughs) symbolically enough, right next to to the U.N. building. Where better for a sinking ship to be pulled up? To remind the natives, to remind the denizens of what it's like, the water is pouring in. Speaking of the water, we have with us tonight the paper book, the paper book gallery, deep down, 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 dark in the heart of seething Greenwich Village. And it does seethe. And I would like to recommend that if you're taking if you're taking the village thing tonight, if you got nothing to do, I can think of no better place to go to spend your. You know, interestingly enough. The paper book gallery is becoming recognized more as a place to go than as a place to buy books. Isn't that sad? <laughs> Isn't that really? I said, Oh, yeah, I went to the paper book. I says, What did you get? He said, Oh, I don't buy no books. He just goes and stands around with Schopenhauer glaring at him and Kant and, and <laughs> Kierkegaard. <laughs> and incidentally, the one who would understand that most of all is Kafka, looking down at this poor clown bathing himself in the aura of books. Well, if you'd like to do it, it's the paper book gallery down on Sheridan Square. And remember, it's the paper book gallery. They have deliberately placed four steps in which you go down to get into this place. It reminds you of the mortality of which you are part of. You can't escape it. And you will find that this is undoubtedly one of the most intriguing shops of any kind you've ever been in in New York City. There are two of them. There's one on 3rd Street. And incidentally, the one on 3rd Street... Uh, by the way, the gallery will be open till two o'clock this morning, the greatest collection of paper books in the uh, probably in America, but two doors down from the one on third street at eighty two West third Street is Ying and Yang, which unquestionably to me at least is one of the finest oriental restaurants in new York, and according to Gourmet magazine is one of the finest five. Oriental restaurants in the United States, which I will not go so far as saying, you know, I'm beginning to have a great unfaith in in, in reviewers. Reviewers obviously are emotional people. I wonder what Walter Kerr thinks every time he walks past that sign that says the best blah, 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 musical I've seen in years. You know the one with a four-letter word in it, <laughs> and it's literally one of the worst. <laughs> so what happened that night anyway? Too many olives. But nevertheless, Ying and Yang at 82 West 3rd Street is truly one of the finest Oriental restaurants in America. And they are open on Sunday. You'll find, and it's very difficult to find a restaurant, a good restaurant, open in New York on Sunday. And if you're going out for dinner, you'll find them open tonight till 10. You'll find them open, oh, 10, 11, they're open to 1. And you'll find them open till 2 o'clock in the morning, most weeknights. And they're they open at noon tomorrow, and they will be open until midnight. And this is 82 West Third Street, Yin and Yang, and they have a bar. They have a bar. Now now now. Don't so su- You see, he jumped over his air conditioner. It was only a drop of 35 feet. That's the point, you see. Over the air conditioner. Over W O R Radio, your station for
4: news. A man with drive. A man with drive!
3: Gets up!